Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Please take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 6. We will read Acts chapter 6 and a portion of chapter 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we, appoint, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, excuse me, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those of Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel." If you would please skip down to verse 54 of chapter 7. Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of his execution. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Our good God, Father, and Savior, we thank you for your word. And we ask now that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So last week, Pastor Wiley brought us a message from Acts chapter 2. And providentially, I had already planned to be in Acts. Uh, so we'll continue some of those thoughts and themes that we began to pick up as we're in the same book. Uh, because periodically in contemporary church history, there are these tendencies uh, in the church or what have called you know, back to acts movements. People get tired of what they perceive as the dusty, dry, dead orthodoxy, 
and they want to get back to a nicer, simpler time, to the house churches of Acts, to uh, the great joy and miracles and freedom that they had at this point, and throw off all of these supposed strictures that we have now. And though there is much error that comes out of those movements, we cannot do as we usually do and just give that a wave of the Reformed hand and say one of our nice little incantations like, well, Acts is descriptive and not prescriptive, and then just move on from there. We, at times, need to take a glance back at Acts because here is not just um, a historical survey, just a retelling of what happened. This is a liturgical document given to the church so that we would become what we behold, so that we, the body, would receive what's offered here to our imagination and live it out. Acts, it's true, records the church in its infancy, just the early days. But it's also true that what we learn in childhood shapes us in maturity. And so when we consider here the drama of Stephen's stoning, we need to consider a few things. Number one, it's just that uh, this story, though it's centered on Stephen, is not really about Stephen. It's not really about deacons. It's not even necessarily, as we'll see, about martyrdom. This story is about Christ and what his people are supposed to look like in the world. It's a drama that invites us into the story that the Spirit is telling about how he is recreating and loving and saving the world through his church. It's a drama that has three parts. First, we see the call of Stephen, the character of Stephen, and then at the end, the conquest of Stephen. So the call in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, the occasion of Stephen's call is the construction of the new temple. In so many ways, the book of Acts is uh, a story about the church being a new temple. Uh, Acts is really, you could call it, a tale of two temples. Uh, at the very beginning, Jesus ascends from the Mount of Olives, which is opposite and overlooks the temple on Mount Zion. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fills the believers gathered at Pentecost, just like the Spirit had filled the tabernacle and the temple before. In chapter 3, we see healings taking place outside the temple uh, by the work of Peter and John specifically. Healing that they were waiting on from inside the temple is found then outside at the new temple. We see in chapter 4 that the disciples are dwelling and worshiping in Solomon's portico, which is a, uh, a structure that's a, attached to the temple compound but is adjacent to it. Um, so they're not in the temple, but they're like it. And finally, here in chapters 5, 6, and 7, we are seeing opposition from the old temple attacking the new temple. So God is building this new temple, but what's different now is that he's building it out of living stones, right? People are the new temple that the Spirit fills, as was always the intention of the temple from Genesis. And so one thing we see very quickly, though, chapter 6, verse 1, some of these living stones don't fit very well together. These Hebrews and these Hellenist women are coming to some divisions, having some issues. And so these apostles now who have been appointed to the work of ministry, they need help in this new temple. They, as this new high priesthood in the one high priest, Jesus Christ, need helpers. They need new Levites. And that's exactly what these deacons are. They are the sacred butlers and bakers in Yahweh's new house, the church. Thus, as we are told in Numbers chapter 3, that there are seven clans of Levites that are chosen to serve the eighth clan of their brother Aaron. Here we're told that there are 
uh, seven new Levitical deacons chosen to serve the College of Apostles. And in every way, it's reflected. Of course, they're, they're not descended like physically, as the Levites of old were. They're descended not by letter, but by the Spirit. And so the, object, the objective of their call is, of course, aiding the Apostles' mission. But in order to do this, in order to be the servants of the servants of God that they're called to be, they have, just like the Levites of old, qualifications they have to meet. When they gather together, we're told that they have to be wise and full of the Spirit. Just like in Leviticus 21, we are told that the Old Covenant Levites had to have specific physical qualifications. You couldn't be lame, you couldn't be blind. Uh, you had to be outwardly perfect, okay? outwardly mature. Well, here now, these new deacons have to be inwardly, spiritually mature men. These qualifications mark them out as mature, and that's key for us to see. Uh, they are marked out because they are, marked, they are men who are worthy of imitation, just like the Levites of the Old Testament. They are new Adams, new sons of God running around the tabernacle, this new garden-like place, and they are a picture of what all of Israel is supposed to be, offering sacrifices continually and thanks to God, clothed with His glory. That's what all Israel is supposed to become. Now these new deacons are new model objects of what the Christian life is supposed to look like, serving wisely and full of the Spirit. Verse 6 of chapter 6, they lay their hands on them. That's exactly what uh, all of the congregation of Israel does to the Levitical priesthood in order to uh, establish a representative principle between them. Uh, and along the way as well, we'll take a short note that we'll come back to soon to note that this is also what the, Levit uh, the Levites of the Old Covenant did to the animals that they were going to sacrifice. They laid their hand on the head of it. That has implications for what we're going to read. So this is all to serve the apostles' mission, the mission of getting the Word of God out and building this new temple. And so what's the outcome of this call? We'll look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 7, of chapter 6, excuse me. We see the conversion of multitudes, including, what are we told specifically? The old priesthood. A great many of the priests become obedient to the faith. That's because he's just got done describing these new deacons as a new priesthood. These old deacons see the beauty and the maturity and the unity that these new priests are able to bring by uh, putting away the bickering of these widows who were from different ethnicities, different nations, through word and table service, and they are drawn to that. This is what they were always trying to do in the first place. And now these followers of Jesus are doing it, and they want to be a part of it. So this is the outcome of his call, but let's turn now to the second half of the story, the second third, rather, uh, the character of Stephen. Quickly, though, there becomes uh, problems. The old temple doesn't like what the new temple is doing. But his character is manifested to us in chapter 6, verse 8. He's full of grace and power. He has a gracious disposition. He does powerful actions. And specifically, those actions are called signs. Do you see that in verse number 9? Excuse me, verse number 8. These signs that Stephen is performing... Signs demand what? A recognition and a response, just like the stop sign, right? Uh, you're supposed to recognize what's there and do something about it. And if you don't, there are consequences if you don't. Uh, there's something more here than just he's, he's doing miraculous actions. Signs all throughout Scripture accompany coming judgments. 
And actually, anytime scripture uses the word sign, it's to show clearly and visibly to all that God approves of one group, but not another. Think about the way that this works out um, earlier in the story of the Exodus. Moses in chapter 3 is told that he is going to perform signs and wonders in Egypt. Well, we call those the plagues eventually. And what is the purpose of those? Most God is demonstrating publicly to the world that he approves of the people who aren't being harmed by those plagues, and he doesn't approve of the Egyptians who are harming his people. Joshua makes the sun stand still as a sign that God is for Israel in this battle and not for the Amalekites. Elisha and Elijah work miracles of cleansing and healing and raising the dead because God is for them and the remnant that follows Elijah and Elisha and not for the wicked who are following along with the program of Ahab and Jezebel. There is always a sign, and that sign has somewhat of a sinister context to it. Judgment is coming. Make sure you're on the right side of the signs. So his character then, signs demand recognition, and he gets a response all right. First, his character is tested. Uh, it's tested by two groups of people. By the freedmen, first of all. Notice the irony there. Okay? He's tested by those who are free outwardly, but internally they are bound by their old allegiance to the dying world of the Mosaic order. And they are bound by their sins. They murder him. They recognize the threat that's, that's uh, opposed to their supposed freedom. And they seek to bind Stephen by his words. Those Stephen's signs could be forgiven. We eventually see his words could not. So they bring him before now the council. The council brings in false witnesses. But notice something very clear about these witnesses in the false council. These witnesses are not false because of what they say. They're not lying. Look down at what they say. What's the message they convict Stephen of? Uh, he says that the Mosaic order is going to be changed, that this temple is going to be torn down, and that there's going to be a new way of interacting with God. Those things are not false. That's exactly the words of Jesus. This is Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. These witnesses are not false because they say something that's a lie. They're false because they don't believe the words accompanying the signs. They don't believe the truth of what is plainly before them, and they blatantly and high-handedly reject it, is what makes them false. And so we see then Stephen's character vindicated finally in verses 13 to 15 of chapter 6. It's vindicated first by his appearance. Notice that they accuse him of speaking against Moses, but he is the one with the shining, glorious face like Moses. He is the shining angel like Moses of the new covenant that is better than the old and immature covenant of Moses. The signs of power that he's performing, it's like they'll be expelled or they will overflow luminously within him. And key for us to see here that it is the trial that manifests the glory that Stephen has from Christ. It's the trial that manifests his glory. But finally, he is ultimately vindicated by his answer. Uh, we unfortunately had to skip the very long speech of chapter 7, but I commend it to you. It's wonderful. I wish we had time to go through it. Uh, read it this evening, this afternoon maybe, for um, Sunday reflection. But he is accusing them... Uh, his false accusers, 
uh, of one thing ultimately. He recounts the whole story of Israel all the way from the beginning, the Mosaic Epoch, down to the present time, and it all leads to this one indictment at the end. You have always resisted the Holy Spirit. That's what he tells them. And so, note one thing. Note that the occasion of Stephen's call parallels many of the occasions of our own time. In both, the church is in the midst of a time of testing, a time of building, and even transforming some of the old order. In both, the people of God are situated among temples that were built by our forefathers, but have become altogether corrupt and even effrontery to the truth. In both, the faithful are called to give an account by those who would suppose themselves to be free men. The only question then that the text puts before us this morning is this. Do we have the character like Stephen's that can live up to a time like Stephen's? And our answer to that question will become very clear by how we react to the end of this story. Because the end of this drama in chapter 7, our final turn here, is the conquest of Stephen. And note carefully, this is not the conquering of Stephen. This is Stephen's conquest in this passage. Stephen conquers chapter 7, verses 51 to 53, because he sees the problem in Israel. He sees that Israel is impious. She is unable to receive correction and hear the word of God right in front of her. She can't bear with the prophets. She's idolatrous. Even when the Spirit comes and speaks clearly, she has set up even God's house, the temple, as an idol that she's unwilling to let go of. She's murderous. She kills all that do not approve of her. And she kills even the righteous one, her maker and Lord Jesus. She's rebellious. She bears the law, but has never once kept it and remained an immature and implacable prodigal. Even worse, and almost at the end, how this ends up in chapter 7, inhuman. They grind their teeth like animals and run at Stephen, eager for his blood. And so Stephen conquers because ultimately he suffers patiently. Stephen suffers patiently. In verses 54 of chapter 7 to verse, chapter 8, verse 1, he suffers through the sight of the ascended Christ. When Stephen says in verse 56 that he looks up and sees the glory of God and sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God in power and glory, this is a, he's hearkening back here to Daniel chapter 7 where we are told that there's one ultimately coming, like the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. He'll put an end to sin, bring forgiveness of sins, and build a new and eternal temple. Stephen conquers because he's participating in that vision. He sees Christ there. He knows the forgiveness he's received, and he knows that Jesus is soon coming to establish once and for all, and extending into all time, the new temple. He suffers at the hands of the false witnesses. Notice what, how, he, how his life ends. He's stoned outside of the city. Stoning outside of the camp was what was required for rebellious sons, those who high-handedly and blatantly rejected the truth. He's being stoned, receiving the punishment that those stoning him deserve. He's taking their place eye for eye in this passage. And more than that, he even asks their pardon for it. Finally, he conquers, and ultimately he conquers, 
by the approval of Saul, whom we will later know as Paul. Everyone's tossing their garment down at Saul's feet. That very important idea there. Uh, it's not just they're going by and they need to take off their coat to get their pitching arm ready or something like that. A garment is your symbol of status, your authority, your ability to have a say in society if you were a Hebrew male. And so they're laying their cloaks at his feet saying, whatever you say is true. Your judgment will tell us whether or not we are right or wrong in what we have just done. And of course, Saul gives them the thumbs up. It was a good thing you did. Saul now becomes doubly guilty. His blood on his own head and their blood on his head. One thing is clear about this passage all the way through, and it's that Stephen is a stand-in for Jesus. Jesus, who is often throughout Scripture called the servant of the Lord, literally the diakonos, the deacon of the Lord. He's the chief deacon. Luke crafts this story of Stephen's selection, his speech, his trial, and his stoning to mirror Jesus' consecration, his conflicts with the Pharisees, his trial in a kangaroo court, and his crucifixion. They are both transfigured. They both perform miraculous signs that demand a response. They are both unjustly tried, and they both die with the same gracious words of pardon on their lips, asking to be received into the hands of the heavenly powers. Stephen is a martyr because he is an image of the first martyr, the Lord Christ, who suffers patiently even for his enemies. Though by this point in the story, Jesus' body is in heaven, Stephen is for us a living icon of the ascended Lord. But there's more than that. Stephen's story is more than just a neat retelling of Jesus' life. Luke puts the story where he does for a very specific reason in the book of Acts. He's trying to show that this story, the story of Jesus' suffering and glory, again through Stephen, is going to be the story of the rest of the body of Christ also. The overwhelming message of the New Testament, but particularly the book of Acts, is that whatever is true of Jesus is true of the church. And we don't get to excuse the story in that case. As goes the head, so goes the body. The husband in heaven is seen through his spousal body, his, his uh, bride on earth. So think about the strange words later in Acts chapter 9 when Saul finally is knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus. A light comes out and appears to him, and uh, what, is, what does he say? Jesus speaking, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not the church, me. Because Christ is so bound in covenant unity with his church that to persecute one is the other. And then think even later, uh, as we continue that theme, when Saul is, uh, the scales over his eyes, Ananias has been sent to help him receive his sight and baptize him. What is Ananias told? Go tell Saul how much he's going to preach the gospel, write the New Testament, how much he's going to suffer for the sake of my name. Saul is converted because he persecuted Stephen. Now Saul is going to be persecuted in Stephen's place and even die as a martyr like Stephen for the conversion of the nations. After Stephen is martyred in Acts 7, James is martyred in Acts 11, and the exact same thing happens. The church scatters all over the Mediterranean, and there's an explosion of the gospel. Churches are planted everywhere. This tells us one thing, friends. Martyrdom is the primary means 
that the Father uses to bring all things in subjection to His Son by His Spirit. Whatever else comes after, this is the first thing. Revelation tells us that martyrs open the door to heaven. And the purpose of the drama of Stephen's stoning is to show that the drama of history and the theater of God's glory is going to play out in just this way. The righteous are going to overcome the wicked the same way that their husband Jesus did, through self-sacrifice rather than self-assertion. Stephen is a style for us. He is a form for our faith to imitate. And so what's set before us is not just a monumental story in our history. Ah, here's our, our first martyr. It's not just a moral tale. Uh, yeah, well, you know, all who live godly in Christ are going to suffer persecution. Something like that. What's set out here before us is a model outline for how to do what we all are most eager to do, which is to see Saul's bow and to see Christendom explode. Stephen is how you do that. Heal disputes in the family of God. Serve widows in humble obscurity. Bear witness with your works and then your words. And love your, even, and love your enemies even when they demand your blood. In short, be a martyr. Easy, right? Simple. This is our calling, though. Our calling is to follow Stephen as Stephen follows Christ. Let's look at three specific ways we're supposed to do this as we wrap up together. Serve the body, bear witness, and love our enemies. Serving the body, as Stephen shows us, means at least one thing. It means healing divisions. We must not deceive ourselves into thinking that we are building Christendom if we are not bringing the body of Christ into greater unity. And notice specifically in this passage that the division is stemming from old ethnic baggage between these Hebrew Israelites and these Hellenistic Israelites. This is worthy of our attention, right? As Pastor Wiley told us last week, the beginning of the book of Acts records a reversal of the ethnic divisions that take place in Acts uh, chapter number 10. Now, those divisions by the Spirit, we're seeing it incarnately torn down uh, through the ministry of Stephen. They are all being brought into unity in the one new ethnos, the one new nation, the church. Here is a practical outworking of the reversal of that curse. And doubtless some of you will quote to me the proverb, well, Grace doesn't destroy nature. It perfects it. Right? All these ethnic divisions, these are good. But I ask you, what does perfect mean? Perfect means as it is described in Revelation. All languages, nations, and tribes united in one new nation called the church. That is what is perfect by grace. But more generally, if we want to zoom out from this, what would be a truer description of an account of the contemporary church than the words that begin Acts chapter 6? Now in those days there arose a dispute. Sounds like a perfect description of where we are, does it not? We may not have squabbling widows knocking down our doors for their daily share of food, but you cannot take an honest look at the church of Christ. 
the whole company of baptized faithful members and not conclude that we are worse off than a bunch of bickering widows. We are detestable, poor, pitiable, miserable, blind, naked, divided. And thus, we should not expect to see what Stephen saw. The growth of the church and the conversion of the old order. Does the world ignore us because we're not powerful? Because we're not loud enough? Could it simply be because they have no good reason to take note, as the priests did in chapter 6? We look like sometimes just a mob that are divided and complacent with that division as they are. So do not be fooled, brothers and sisters. Our Lord Jesus Christ does not allow us simply to roll the condemnation of unbelief off on their own head. Scripture is plain and clear from Genesis to Revelation that turmoil in the world results from disunity in the body. Think about Peter's words. Judgment begins at the house of God. In the longest prayer that is recorded for us from Jesus in the Scripture, he says this, The glory that you have given me, John 17, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. You have given it to me and I have given it to them that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Just like nothing captures the attention of a man stranded in the desert like a sight of an oasis, so nothing captures the attention of our world like a glimpse of genuine unity. The world does not believe in its Maker and Lord because we are at war with ourselves. The hand thinks that the foot is unnecessary and the eye tries to rip itself away from the rest of the body. And it ought not be so, brothers and sisters. This is why that they don't take note. So, questions are before us then. What will be true religion that causes pagans to quake and nations to bow? Stephen shows us the humble work of healing divisions. How do we do this? Well, Paul gives us very clear instruction in 1 Timothy 6 and Titus 3. You avoid contentions with each other by avoiding foolish controversies. And as Paul says specifically in Titus 3.9, foolish controversies that are about genealogies, that are about ethnic origin. Avoid these and contention, controversy, and division will be stemmed. And until the church shares ultimately a common table as one family, locally, here in our congregation, and across the world, we must expect nothing in the Word of God to be stifled. So, do you stir up strife? Do you stir up division over genealogies? Are you helping out any poor widows, whether in our congregation or elsewhere. These are the things. We have many plans, many plans. But do we have a plan to deal with the one issue that above all others will keep the Word of God from spreading like it should? So, heal divisions. Number two, bear witness. This is the good part, right? This is the fun part. We need to be like Stephen, right? Break out the sharp words. Give me the long speech. Turn our tongues and teeth into weapons 
with which we can prove our enemies to be foolish. This is what we want. And the only problem, of course, is that's not what Stephen does at all. The only people in this passage who are grinding their teeth in violent rage are the wicked in verse 54. Get this, the primary witness that Stephen bears in the broader story is not his words. It's his deeds. His verbal witness is only occasioned by his merciful witness. In fact, though he has the longest speech in the book of Acts, it's the only time that he ever speaks. And so we are taught by this that we are, not that we're never supposed to bear witness with our words, but rather that we are prepared to bear witness with our mouths by first working with our hands. Only those whose hands have done works of mercy for the widow have hearts that are prepared to bear witness because they have borne with humility. For the poor and needy in them, we behold the face of Christ, as he tells us in Matthew 25, 40. So in opposition to the faith of Stephen, we live in a world that platforms anybody, which we've heard about this morning. Anywhere, anytime, you can have a voice. You can create an online kingdom for yourself out of words. And much like Stephen's faces, the truth is that many of us in the church, our faces also have a perpetual glow. But the difference is ours is electronic, and his was angelic. Right? We do this because we desire glory. We want radiance. And rightly so. We were created for glory. However, glory does not come from getting into Twitter scuffles about the foolishness of our local souls and by just daring them to bring us before the council. Give us our moment and we'll give you what for. We must not be too busy digging for the latest niche Facebook fads and jumping on the latest thread and neglect seeking the true and shining glory that only comes from a virtuous life full of deeds of faithful mercy. So let us be slow to speak, friends, and even slower to type. True religion is taming our tongues, how much more our keyboards. True religion, again from James 2, begins not with words, but with deeds of mercy. We must fear, lest, like Stephen, we be called to give an account with our words without having a trail of works that justify our words. We must fear, lest we be the church that boasts of being strong, but lacks the greatest strength of all, which is the ability to love even those who hate us. And so finally, love your enemies. Love your enemies. The final thing that the drama of Stephen Stoning teaches us is that having served the body and having borne witness with our works and then our words, the chief way that we follow Stephen, as Stephen follows Christ, is not with good actions, gracious words, or even martyrdom, but by doing it all for the forgiveness of our enemies. We are never closer to perfection in godliness than when we can say with Stephen, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Think about Christ's words from the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said you will love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. 
Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Perfection is in loving those who hate us. Like Stephen, we can forgive only because we've been forgiven. Because we see the joy and the glory and the reward that waits at the right hand of the Father for us. Because Christ is bringing His eternal kingdom of peace on earth as it is in heaven. That's our strength to do this. Yeah, it's true. There are some who are going to outright reject. They are going to reject and they will be destroyed. But that is God's prerogative to worry about. Our duty is to seek their forgiveness from God. Our duty is, as his prophets, to go to those who are too blinded by their own fury and rage to see their condition and to say, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Instead, we pray for them, we honor them, we do deeds that benefit them, and we speak honestly to them when it requires it, but ultimately, we even lay down our lives for them. And so in conclusion, friends, we read in Revelation chapter 20 of the current reign of Christ. He is reigning and ruling now. And those who are reigning with him are called martyrs. The crown will only be ours if we act like Stephen, who incidentally, his name in Greek means crown. This means plainly that heaven's crown is only available to martyrs. Not because martyrdom is somehow meritorious, but because death to sin and selfishness is the essential mark of a follower of Christ. The world, uh, these martyrs, excuse me, that are currently reigning with Christ have robes shining bright, dipped not in the blood of their enemies, but in their own blood. So, do you want to see Christendom flourish? Do you want to see Saul's bow? I know that you do. Then be like Stephen. Forgive your enemies. Heal divisions. Don't cause divisions. Bear witness with your deeds first, and then your wor words when they're asked for. Follow Stephen as Stephen follows Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our God, Father, and Savior, make us like Stephen, because Stephen is like your son. Do this by your Holy Spirit as we partake now of the table that Stephen set. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.